although this is a podcast that claims to take nothing seriously, some subjects are genuinely serious and need to be treated seriously, and this episode touches on some of those topics. We've included a detailed content note for this episode in the description. Please take a moment to read that before continuing. You know, like when you have like a TV series, and if, if, if the plot's you know, quite complicated, they'll have that recap at the start of every mm. episode. This play is so convoluted, they have a recap. <laughs> in the middle of the, the episode. Of the Hello, I'm Nora. And I'm James. And we're your hosts for Not, Not Another, Another Shakespeare, Shakespeare Podcast. Podcast. The podcast that takes neither itself nor Shakespeare very seriously. And today I am very excited because we are doing my favourite Shakespeare play, Cymbeline. 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 Is that like Thumbelina learning to play the drums? Yeah, actually, that would be honestly less weird than what this play actually is. Hmm, interesting. It's a wacko. <laughs> it's a wacko play. It's, um, this is the first play we've done on the podcast where I actually had to write down what happens in it because I thought I would get lost if I didn't have it in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. It's bonkers. And it's, we've got, what is it? You've done 17 pages of notes over there? Yes, I have 17 pages of notes. You might hear me flipping my notes around, turning pages. Flippity flipper. Flippity flipper. Um, it's a beast of a play. It is weird and wacky. Sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense. But we're going to do our best. And that's why it's so beloved by the world. That's why I love it. I think it's great. <laughs> but yeah, it's probably why you haven't really... No one's ever heard of it. You don't really hear that much about this one. And it's by Shakespeare. I know. It's like, we're sleeping on this play, honestly. It's it's just so good. I love it. This is one of Shakespeare's late plays. Notoriously very difficult to categorize in terms of genre because it's a love story, but it's also kind of a political war story. And it's also a long lost family story. And it's got some supernatural elements in it and some historical elements. It's kind of just, you know, every, it's, it's something for everybody. It's a buffet of genres. Mm. Throw in the kitchen sink. Throw in the kitchen sink. Might Is as there well. a kitchen sink in it? Uh, surprisingly, no. Okay. So Cymbeline is set in Roman Britain. I believe Cymbeline is actually a historical king of Britain in that period. And in the play, we have kind of three main plot lines that I'll try to kind of flag up as we go. The main, the main, main one is a love story between Imogen and Posthumus. 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 Okay. Is he? Was he dead? <laughs> he's he's called Posthumus because he was his mother died in childbirth and his father and his brothers also were dead. Wow, a lot <laughs> of death. So he outlived his whole family. So he's called Posthumus. Posthumus Leonatus. Hmm. Get some lion in there. He's a lion as well. He's a lion as well, yes. Lord, see this lion costume that we've talked about before. Uh, they wanted to reuse it. Wanted to reuse it. Yeah, mm. the lion from As You Like It needed another, you know, mm. needed a is he revival. A bit like, is he a bit like one of the cats? Yeah, he's like like the movie Cats. That's how he looks. He looks like that. Traditionally. When he comes on stage. Yeah. In production, traditionally, he has furry leg warmers um, and a tail. And does he sing? He does. And e dance. Everything he says is sung. <laughs> and he's a great dancer. Very 80s. He's very 80s. Shakespeare really ahead of his time with this one. Yeah, That's what they say when they say Shakespeare was ahead of his time. Yeah, he just really invented cats. Andrew Lloyd Webber stole cats from Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. 
See, Cymbeline, you don't know this could be true. You've probably never read never this play. Read <laughs> <laughs> we can say anything right now. <laughs> it's great. I'm so, I feel so free. Um, so Posthumus is in love with Imogen, and that's the love story. Then we have the kind of political war story, which is that Britain is trying to, uh, has not been paying tribute to Rome and has a war to um, essentially separate from Rome. Uh, a lot of the rhetoric in this play feels very painfully familiar from the perspective of the years 2016 to 2021, for reasons that I will not say. And then we have the family drama, which is uh, that there are there are two princes missing, who've been missing since they were infants. And they uh, presumably were kidnapped, and the king does not know where they are. Except the king did it. That would be cool, but no. Oh. <laughs> page one. <laughs> page, page one of page uh, one of notes of the tome. Yeah. So um, those three plots kind of collide with each other at various points, particularly as we get closer to the end. Um, so I'll do my best to kind of keep them all straight and flag where we are. Okay. So at the at the start of the play, the very opening scene. Um, we get one of Shakespeare's kind of stock openings where we have two minor characters who we never, ever see again, catching us up on the backstory. Classic. Classic opening. Uh, so they, for some reason, are discussing sort of the palace gossip. And they tell us that Posthumus Leonatus was an orphan who was raised in the palace by Cymbeline as sort of his ward. They just happen to be having that conversation. They just happen to be <laughs> talking very specifically about the, the history of these characters. Nice, nice little bit of exposition there. It's convenient. It's very, very convenient, convenient. conversation. This play is full of such conveniences. <laughs> And they say that Imogen, who is the princess, is the same age as Posthumus. They grew up together and now they're in love. But King Cymbeline um, does not approve of this because Posthumus is not actually nobility. And so they went and eloped. They've gotten married in secret. Daddy Cymbeline found out. He's not very happy about it. And he banished Posthumus from Britain. Mm. He said, you have to leave. You cannot be in Britain at all. Go away. But Imogen is still in Britain. Imogen is still in Britain. She's the princess. Why well, she not gone with him? Uh, I don't think she can. I think he he's that like the point is that he's separating them. Hmm. Keep in mind we're in a, a misogynist framework yes, here. Yes, I was just about to say. <laughs> <laughs> she's not allowed. She's not allowed. She's an adult. She's old enough to get married, but she's not allowed. <laughs> she's not allowed to question Daddy Cymbeline. Yes. We also find out that Daddy Cymbeline has a second wife, Imogen's stepmother, Imogen's mother is dead, who only is ever referred to as the queen. She has no name. The queen. <laughs> yes. And and your kind of evil English accent is very appropriate there because she is an evil queen. She's like an evil stepmother stereotype. Getting the, the kind of fantasy stereotypes on this yeah. one. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot in this play. He packs it in. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the queen, who is married to Cymbeline, has a son. Um, who is not Cymbeline's son, he's a stepson, called Clotten. Clotten. Clotten, like a clot of blood. Like an idiotic jumper. Yes. <laughs> like an idiotic jumper. Yes. We're going to roll with that. That's 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 where we're going. <laughs> that's, that's especially good, and you don't even know this yet, because his whole, like, death is tied up in what clothes he's wearing. Oh, so... I thought you were going to go somewhere like, oh, he gets killed by a sheep or something, but... <laughs> They are in Wales. They are in Wales. At that point. So, you know. Um, so, Clotten. Cymbeline and the Queen want Clotten and Imogen to get married because that would kind of keep the power in the family. Um, so, this is why the king is so upset that she's married posthumous instead. 
And very last crucial detail that these two courtiers kind of casually mention as an aside on their way out of the room at the end of the scene. By the way, the king's two sons were kidnapped as babies and nobody knows what happened to them. I like that. Just, oh yeah, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I should also mention that this play is um, really packed full of details that seem irrelevant at the moment that they're mentioned and then become really important later. It's like that scene from Wayne's World. Um, with Chris Farley, where he's like describing in detail oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where the, the record producer's limousine is going. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And then in, later, in the back of the van. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then later they say, wow, it's great he gave us all that information. It seemed extraneous at the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how this play rolls. Yeah. It's like Wayne's World. It's like Wayne's World. <laughs> it's, it's basically early modern Wayne's World. It's, it's, see, I, we're taking all the genres. We've got Cats, we've got Wayne's World. We're, you know, fantasy. We're rolling. So, the next scene is Posthumous and Imogen saying goodbye. And they exchange love tokens with each other. So, love tokens? Love tokens, yes. What is a love token? What's the definition of a love token? A love token is an object that you give to your lover so that they will remember you when you are physically distanced from each other. Uh, so it's not like It's not like a sort of a token is like ah so you, i owe you one blowjob like a future date or <laughs> i owe you one cunnilingus or you know. I that's owe a loving you. token i owe you one cunnilingus <laughs> there's no there's no quick way of saying that. i owe you one going down on you there's no just oral Oh, it doesn't have the same ring. We're talking about love here. Oral sounds so clinical. All right, Emer, get on the merch wagon. We're going to need tokens. <laughs> I owe you one cunningus on them. <laughs> no, that's not what a love token is. I'm just taking it at face value. Right? Yes, I can, I can like, see. Like, if you have a book token, right, you get a book token. You go, oh, great, I've got £10. <laughs> I can use this to afford books. Oh, my God. You get a love token. It's, you know, I'm just going at the same same level. I can see how you got there, but that's not what it is. <laughs> so, no, a love token is, a, is an object that you give to your lover to um, remember you by when you have to be far apart. So Imogen gives Posthumus a ring. And Posthumus gives Imogen a bracelet, and they both promise that they're never ever taking these off unless they're dead. Posthumus also leaves behind his servant, Pisanio, to look after Imogen while he's gone. And then he leaves for Italy. Imogen is left uh, alone to fend off the advances of Clotten, who is a genuinely horrible jumper. And <laughs> he's like a really like scratchy. Yeah, like scratchy thick, and thick, but not in a comfortable way. No, like smelly and scratchy and like maybe crusty like hasn't been washed in Ooh, a long crusty time jumper. crusty crusty scratchy jumper yeah no he's gross so she has to kind of fend off clotten um as well as covert assassination attempts from the queen oh yeah the name the the queen that's her whole name the Just queen the queen queenie um so case in point the queen asks her doctor to make her a deadly potion. And she tells him, don't worry, I'm only going to use this on small animals. Only on small animals. Because that makes it better. Because that makes it so much better. It's okay as long as I'm poisoning squirrels and dogs. And what does old Docky say? Uh, well, the doctor says, um, okay, yeah, I can do that for you. He agrees to do it. But actually, in fact, he kind of completely sees through her 
And he instead makes her a potion that is not deadly, but it will make someone seem dead for several hours. Is this the same doctor who gave a potion to Juliet then? It is It is a Romeo and Juliet potion, yes. yes. <laughs> it's exactly the same principle. Except nobody knows that that's what it is except the doctor. Mm-hmm. So the queen then gives that potion to Pisanio as a, a sign of her sort of goodwill because she's trying to get him on side to help seduce Imogen for Clotten. Um, and she tells him that it's a it's a powerful restorative and that she, he should keep it handy with him in case of emergency. Like if somebody's really sick, give them this and then they'll feel better. That nasty queen. She is nasty. Yeah, she's a, she's a whole stereotype. That potion will become important later. So don't forget who knows what about it. Chris Farley will explain it to us. (laughs) Chris Farley will explain it to us with lots of hand gestures later on. Meanwhile, Posthumus has gone off to Italy and he's met a man called Giacomo. Giacomo is an asshole. Giacomo? Giacomo. Isn't there like like a men's clothing company or something called Giacomo? (laughs) I don't know. There might be. Should we Google it? <laughs> I think there is. But anyway. <laughs> anyway, so Posthumus has gone off and met Yakumo. Um, Yakumo's an asshole, and he also brings out Posthumus's inner asshole, which we haven't seen a lot of yet in His the play. Inner asshole. He's got a big inner asshole, yes. I see the face you're making. <laughs> do they exchange love tokens? <laughs> they, they do not exchange love tokens. <laughs> he's he's not, not that kind of inner asshole. Um but Posthumus tells Yakimo about his beloved wife Imogen back in Britain and how much he misses her. And he boasts that she is the most faithful woman in the whole world and that she's much better than all the women in Italy. And Yakimo doesn't like this. Um, and he sort of goads Posthumus into a wager. And he says, uh, if I, Yakimo, can go to Britain and seduce your wife, Imogen, um, Posthumus will surrender the ring that Imogen gave her him and he will also admit that uh, women are not as faithful, not as faithful as he thinks they are. All women. All women. And Yakima wagers ten thousand ducats on this, so it's a pretty big sum of money. Ducats, ducats. Mm. Italian money. Yes. Um, is a pretty big wager, right? Pretty major sum of money mm. to lay down on the bet that he can seduce somebody else's wife. Sensing a theme here. Yeah. So Posthumus agrees to this. <laughs> Why? This is what I mean about inner asshole, right? Like he Does gets... he does he feel like he wants to know whether I, she'll be faithful to him? I think he just is that confident about it, but he also is an idiot because he hasn't clocked that Yakimo's not an honest person. Mm-hmm. He's a swindler. He is a swindler. And a rogue. He is a rogue. And the whole scene is just like mega, mega objectifying. Like it's very, my notes on my actual copy are like, wow, this is objectifying. Oh, wow. They just literally compared Imogen's vagina to the ring that Posthumus is wearing. Okay. I I was thinking that when you said the ring, to be fair, I thought. Yeah. It's that love token again, you know. There it is. The love token. So Posthumus stupidly agrees to this and Yakimo goes to Britain Um, But to his surprise, Imogen is not to be seduced. She is very faithful to Posthumus. She's really in love with him. He only left like five minutes ago. So it's not like it's been, you know, some kind of massively long time. She's just as faithful as Posthumus said. And Yakimo, instead of admitting defeat, decides to cheat. So he hides in a trunk and he asks for the trunk to be stored in her bedroom overnight. Okay. (laughs) Normal thing that people do. Yeah. Yeah. 
So he hides in the trunk, he waits for her to fall asleep, and then once she's asleep, he creeps out of the trunk and creeps around her room and takes notes about what her bedroom looks like. Okay. Creepy (laughs) AF. Creepy AF. And then he says, "Mm, that's not going to be enough evidence because I could have seduced one of her servants and had the servant tell me what her bedroom looks like. I need something better. So he pulls the blankets down and he starts examining her body. Wow. While she's asleep. So this is sort of sexual assault. What it, it, it is not even sort of. Imogen astonishingly does not wake up this whole time. But he's he, a deep sleeper. She's he's a, faithful and a deep sleeper. Clearly faithful and a deep sleep. What more could you want in a wife? Yeah. That's it. That's what attracted you to me. It's my deep sleep. faithfulness <laughs> and, and the depth of your sleep. Yes. <laughs> so... Yakovo notes that she's got a mole under her breast, and he makes wow. A note so he, he totally is. Oh, he's really in he's there. He's just yeah. having a having a ball down there. Right? Yep, he's he's right up in there. So he notes down this mole under her breast, and he also sees the bracelet on her wrist. He doesn't know that Posthumus gave it to her, but he sees the bracelet and he says, "I will take that, and that will be evidence that I have actually been in her bedroom, and I'll say she gave it to me." Wow. And then he gets back in his trunk. <laughs> he likes it. He's like, I guess. I don't know. I've customized it. I'm going to make use of it. <laughs> I'm comfortable here now. It's one of those, what do you call them? Um, micro, micro house. It's oh yeah. Little, it's a, it's a, a tiny home. It's a little tiny home. <laughs> He's happy there. He's happy. Just let him be happy. Ugh, I hate Yakimo. He's so gross. Okay. So the next morning Yakimo is gone. Imogen wakes up. She has no idea that any of this has happened, but she's about to have a really bad morning nonetheless because Clotten is there with musicians to serenade her to help her wake up and in the morning in the morning that's that's pretty annoying how would you like it if at like i don't know when this is sort of 7 a.m in the morning and we didn't know each other or we knew each other vaguely right? and also you were a crusty jumper. and i was also a crusty jumper and i just turned up with uh like an army of musicians and they were just sort of and and like wake you up like oh it'll rouse her from her sleep with the beautiful songs of the morning and you're like shut up (laughs) that's pretty much what happens yeah um also the king and queen are there to cheer him on (laughs) so they're they're supporting they've got a pretty light schedule then haven't they (laughs) this is this is the number one we we have to get up early tomorrow we have to accompany it clotten on this serenading quest never mind the issues of poverty and starvation in our kingdom we need to help clotten get the girl he probably needs the help i'm yeah i mean he's he's a crusty jumper he is a crusty jumper no one wants a crusty jumper no one wants a crusty jumper so as as you'd expect she's really annoyed about this and she is trying to say like the meanest things she can think of just to get rid of him and she says to him, literally, even if you were the son of God, I would not want you. And I value Posthumus's meanest garment. That's the phrase she uses, meanest garment, more than I value your life. Well, he is a garment. We've established that. So <laughs> We've established that he's, he's a an inferior jump. garment. He's an inferior at. garment. But she literally says, if, if a sock had touched Posthumus's body once, <laughs> I would love that more than I love you. Wow. <laughs> yeah. This will become important later. The sock. The the meanest garment. <laughs> the sock is the key. <laughs> the sock is the key. It it really sticks in his craw. He's really, really upset about this. Mm. It's Clotten. Um, so it becomes important later on. Meanwhile, back in Italy, 
Posthumus is also having a bad day because Yakimo is back and he's like, I fucked your wife. And Posthumus is like, there's no way. But then Yakimo shows him the bracelet and he talks about the mole on her breast. And Posthumus is like, oh shit, it must be true. Um, she said she'd never take that bracelet off. How did you get it? He's like, how do you think I got it? Well, he doesn't think for a minute, oh wait, he could have just stolen it or taken it by force. Yeah, no. or he's, he's very willing to believe that his wife has been unfaithful to him with this guy she met for a second. Wow. Mm-hmm. He's, this is what I mean when I say it brings out his inner asshole. Mm-hmm. I hope no one remembers him when he's dead. Hmm. Posthumous. Yeah. Yeah. So even though all his friends try to convince him that he's being ridiculous, Posthumous um, surrenders Imogen's ring and concedes the bet to Yakimo. And then Posthumous has, and I cannot stress this enough, an entire scene where it's just him alone on stage talking about how horrible women are. Class act. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's great. It's really good. He goes into detail about, like, part of me is woman because I was grown in my mother's womb, so if I could find the part of me that was woman, I would cut it off and be rid of it because I don't want anything to do with women anymore. I mean, he really, like... This is sort of going into incel vibes. It is extreme incel vibes, except he is married, so it's he's like... He's married. He's wow. just... Yeah. Um, it gets, he gets, he really, really, it's a horrible, horrible speech. It's going in my book because it's that misogynist. Wow. Mm -hmm. So when we get to the last part of the show, it's going to be a... This, this one ranks high. (laughs) (laughs) This ranks high on the misogynometer. The whole scene all to himself where he's like, women are the worst, eh? You know what I mean, guys. Yeah. Is it it in that kind of vibe It is in that kind of vibe. It is absolutely in that kind of vibe. (sighs) Like a sort of stand-up act. Yeah. What's the deal with women, eh? One minute they say that they're yours, and the next minute they're fucking some random guy. Except they're not. Except they're not. She never did. She can do so much better than this asshole. Okay. So pretty much we've had love plot so far, mostly. Now we get a little flavor of the political plot coming in. So we're back at the castle. Some spicy politico. Some spicy politico, yes. Get Jack Bauer on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, millennial reference. Yeah. Um, so we are back in Britain at Cymbeline's castle, and this guy Caius Lucius has come from Rome, and he says, Cymbeline, you owe tribute to Rome, but you haven't paid it in a long time. That's a problem. Clotin and the Queen sort of assert Britain's independence, um, and Cymbeline sides with them, and suddenly Britain and Rome are at war, as you do. As they do. As they do. Um, But Cymbeline offers Lucius hospitality in his court regardless until it's time for him to leave and build his army. Conveniently. Yeah. He's literally like, well, Caesar was the one who trained me to be a soldier, so I feel like we should be nice to you and let you stay. But also we're at war. We're at war, but have you seen the master bedroom? (laughs) (laughs) We're at war, but you've had such a long journey. You've had such a long time. Long drive. Long drive from Rome to England. Just park the Ferrari in the in the uh, in the underground garage, and we'll show you to the ensuite. Yes. Come and have a bath. Um, bring some charcuterie out to you in yes. tiddly poop. What if it is? Tiddly poop. I don't know. Do you mean potpourri? No. Um, I mean, we'll bring some charcuterie out to you. Is it tiddly squat? What's it no? What's tiddly, it? When you say quickly. Lickety split. Lickety split. <laughs> or tiddly poop, as it's now known. <laughs> Which just sounds like a, a failed bowel movement. <laughs> okay. So 
So moving swiftly <laughs> on. Right. So that war will come back later. They just put the war on hold. Well, we're just sort of, you know, we're waiting for the war. It's not started yet. Okay. So back to the lovers. Posthumus writes to Pisanio, his servant, who is still in Britain, and says to him, I've written a letter to Imogen telling her to meet me at Milford Haven. That known <laughs> tourist destination. <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know why Milford Haven. All of the Italians seem to come and go from Milford Haven. It makes no sense to me. That does not seem like the fastest way to Italy. It really is not. Why Why Milford Haven? Do we know Shakespeare scholars? Why Milford Haven? Yeah, I don't know why Milford Haven. I guess maybe it's in the historical chronicles that he's drawing from for the history maybe. parts of this. Um, I could find out. But yeah, they go to... She, he, so Posthumus has written a letter to Imogen saying, meet me at Milford Haven. But he says to Pisanio, I'm not actually in Milford Haven. This is a ruse to lure Imogen away from the castle so that you can kill her for me. Mm. I've been to a Tesco in Milford Haven. <laughs> Do you reckon you? they go there? <laughs> yeah, that Tesco is, is well known to be... That's right, these Italians love it. Thousands of years old. There's, you know, there's the Roman Amphitheater mm. and the Roman Tesco. They're right next to each other. Yeah, they love the Tesco finest linguine. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you'll find them. That's it. That's it. That's the stuff. So Posthumus has leapt from, I'm pretty sure my wife cheated on me, even though I have no evidence, to spousal murder. He's he's going going for uxoricide. Pisanio is very uncomfortable about this whole thing. He does not like it one bit. He knows that Imogen hasn't been unfaithful because he's been there the whole time. But Imogen is really, really excited about the fact that her husband might be in Milford Haven and she can go and see him. And he just doesn't have the heart to tell her that that is not what is happening. So they pack their bags and they go to Milford Haven. To the Tesco. To the Tesco. They're on their way. Now, halfway there, Pisanio's conscience gets the better of him and he spills the beans. He he tells her everything. In the bean aisle. <laughs> yeah. They're in, they're in the canned goods aisle of Tesco and... She says again, oh, I can't wait to see Posthumus. And he just drops all the beans. He's like, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> I have to tell you the truth. <laughs> this basket is too heavy. <laughs> I cannot carry this weight. I cannot carry this weight in beans. It's, it's metaphorical. It's yeah. material. It's everything. The beans are everywhere. And obviously Imogen is very upset when she finds out that Posthumus wants to kill her for something that she didn't even actually do. And she tells Bisanio, well, you might as well just kill me. And if, if what Posthumus wants is for me to be dead, I'm such a faithful wife that I will just die. I'm that faithful. Wow. Mm -hmm. She's pretty submissive as well. Yeah, we're creeping up the misogynometer here. The She's, deeper we get into yeah. the play. Yeah. There's no comment about that. She's she's. What, 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 what does she kind of do? Like... What do you I mean, mean, what does she do? She's a princess. She's a princess, right? Yeah. When I say what does she do, I mean she seems very just willing to kind of go along with anything. Like, you know, the father, Daddy Cymbeline, is no, I'm I'm splitting you apart. And then she is running away to Milford Haven to okay. she okay. thinks meet her husband, who is supposed to not be in Britain. Okay. So she says, I I just kill me now. I'm that faithful to Posthumus that I will just let you kill me. And Pisanio's like, well, we don't, or, or just hear me out here. I have a different idea where I don't kill you. And he says, all right, look, I will tell Posthumus that you are dead. I will tell him that I killed you because apparently he just believes anything anyone says when it comes yeah. to you. And 
Mr. Gullible. Mr. Gullible. And Imogen, you instead are going to carry on to Wales. You're going to go to Milford Haven. You're going to disguise yourself as a boy. And you're going <laughs> to... Wait, are we, we've, so how many Shakespeare plays? This is the, the fourth one we've done, right? I'm just trying to get my head around the fact that we've got a woman disguising herself as a boy. Mm-hmm. And every other Shakespeare play that we've discussed so far in this series has had that same uh, yes. device. Merry yes. Wives and As You Like It. As You Like It didn't. And Merry Wives didn't. Did it not? No. no, I thought there was someone who was getting married in the... Oh, yeah. She didn't disguise herself as a boy. She had boys dress up as her. Oh, completely different. Completely different. And also Falstaff dresses up as a woman in one part of that play, which I think I skipped over in the episode. Okay. Yeah. So we have we have a lot of cross-dressing on the early modern yeah. stage in general. Keep in mind that you you originally had casts of all men for these things. Yeah. Right? So, you know, it's sort of like a, a hearty hard look at this joke. We've got mm. a boy playing a girl playing a boy. Isn't it funny? Or it's easy. They just don't have to dress up as anyone when they... Yeah. Are... <laughs> just be themselves. Yeah express themselves so he says all right imogen you're going to keep going to wales you're going to dress up as a boy and you're going to try and get onto caius lucius's ship to rome which for some reason is leaving from wales (laughs) and and you're gonna um get yourself to italy and you're gonna go to posthumus and you're gonna explain the whole thing and i'm sure he will take you back straighten the whole thing out so imogen agrees to she changes her clothes she calls herself fidele which means faithful Fidelity. Yeah, exactly. And Pisanio gives her the queen's potion before he leaves. And he says to her that this will, quote, drive away distemper. That's the line he uses. Um, because the barley that's potion. The, the Romeo and Juliet potion, yeah. 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 That's, because that's what he thinks it is, right? The queen told him that it's healthy. Yeah. And I can so, see where this is all going. Right. And then Pisanio goes back to the castle to sort of cover for her. Meanwhile, they have noticed that Imogen is missing at home, and Clotten threatens Pisanio until he hands over Posthumus's letter to Imogen, which is telling her to go to Milford Haven. And Clotten decides that he's going to follow her to Milford Haven, and here comes the meanest garment reference again. He's going to go in Posthumus's clothes. Wow. He's going to put on Posthumus's clothes. Like, like in Friends, when uh, Joey and Chandler are having that fight, and Joey puts on all of Chandler's clothes. It is exactly that level Commando. of petty. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is that level of petty. So he's so upset that she said that Posthumus's clothes are more valuable to her than he is, that he's going to wear Posthumus's clothes to go and chase her to Wales. Somehow he thinks this will help. Because she's really in love with... His clothes. His clothes. Yeah, he's missed the entire point of what she was saying. So he's wearing Posthumus's clothes. This will be important later. He's just trying to just disguise his own crusty... Exterior. Yeah, he doesn't want anyone to, you know, get know that he's a bad jumper. Crossed off, flaking off his jumper on them. Ugh. All right. So Imogen, bless her heart, is wandering in the countryside, dressed as a boy, trying to get to Milford Haven. She's exhausted. She's hungry. She stumbles upon a cave where there's a fire and cooked meats, and she's like, "Fuck yes!" And she starts eating. The occupants of the cave. An old man and his two sons. That's my dinner. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> they return and they have exactly that reaction. It's like um, Goldilocks. Right. But then the sons immediately feel this kind of inexplicable connection to her. Almost Called like, lust. No, no, not oh, lust. Not almost lust. like she's family. Well, they think she's a boy uh, at this point, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, so she's well, disguised as a boy. They, could, be. they could feel lust, but they don't. I think there is a line that's something like, well, if you were a woman, you'd be really hot, but it's a shame that you're not. And because you're not, I feel this strong fraternity with you. I feel like you could be my brother. 
and they decide to take her in. Any guesses who those two boys actually are? The two ones who were like dead at the beginning. Yes, the kidnapped princes, Imogen's actual brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Now the audience knows that, but Imogen doesn't and the brothers don't because the old man who's with them, Bilarius, kidnapped them as babies because he was mad that Cymbeline thought he had betrayed him what? Yeah. What is going on in this play? I told you. People have the weirdest, the weirdest justifications for their actions. I told you it's wacko. So, Belarius, alias Morgan, has kept this a secret and raised these two boys on his own for like 20 years in the wilderness and these boys have no idea. They do not know that they're princes. Meanwhile, we get a whole scene about Rome preparing the troops for war. So we were like, hey, the war is still happening. It's coming. It's brewing. It's not here yet, but it's coming. Yep. Yep. We're building up to it. Okay, so like several days later, Imogen, who is still disguised as a boy, isn't feeling very well, and her brothers, who she doesn't know are her brothers, leave her in the cave while they go hunting. And while they're out hunting, they run into Clotten, who has caught up with Imogen and predictably picks a fight with them because he is a crusty jumper. And one of the brothers cuts off his head and kills him. Kills Clotten? Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. Yep, so Clotten's dead, still wearing Posthumus's clothes. <laughs> oh, God. Let, let me guess where this is going. Does she think that they've killed Posthumus? Yes, but it's even weirder than that. Okay. <laughs> so, back at the cave, Imogen takes the queen's potion because she's not feeling well, and Pisanio told her. <laughs> Seriously, what the fuck? I feel like Shakespeare was just like, you know what? I've been using a lot of these devices in my plays, but... I'm really going to, you know, dial this one up to 11 and just just make it as over the top as possible. I told you it was a buffet. It was a buffet. It is a buffet of, of Shakespeare Or you tropes. can eat Shakespearean <laughs> devices. Yes. It's sort of a greatest hits album, right? Like it's one of his last plays. Yeah, maybe he, I'm going to go out with a bang with that play that no one, <laughs> no one remembers. He didn't know no one he would remember it. At the time. He might have been high. Okay, so Imogen takes the queen's potion, right? Because Bassanio told her that it was a tonic and she's not feeling well. And then um, she faints and it seems like she's dead because that's what that potion does. For some reason, when her brothers, who she doesn't know are her brothers, find her and they think she's dead, they decide that they should bury her with Clotten, who they've just killed. Okay. Don't ask me to explain it. <laughs> so- I think they're just lazy. We're gonna we got we've got to drip we've got to dig one grave. We well, may as well just bang everyone in it. They're they're setting us up for the next scene. So is really what it is. It's a it's a plot function, yeah. right? So um they lay out headless Clotten wearing Bostromus's clothes and Imogen, who's disguised as the boy Fidele, but next to each other and they lay out and have some nice flowers and they sing a song and then they go away for a while. Why are they leaving these bodies out in the wilderness? Who knows? Okay, really important to remember that Clotten is still dressed as Posthumus. And actually, in a lot of productions, Clotten and Posthumus are double cast, so they're the same actor playing those two roles because they're never on stage together. Um, and it kind of highlights how the, the extent to which they are both assholes, just of slightly different varieties. And also, it makes the scene funnier. Okay, so Clotten is wearing Posthumus's clothes. So when Imogen wakes up next to headless Clotten, she thinks it's Posthumus. Yeah. 
And she has a very long speech about how sad she is about it with a lot of, where is thy head? Where is thy head? Where is thy head? <laughs> yes. Is that the verbatim? Yes, quote? that is the quote. <laughs> and she goes into a lot of detail about how like she knows his body so well and she knows that this is him. Even without the head, she can tell that it's him because he's got a martial thigh and a, um, yeah. A martial thigh. <laughs> a martial thigh and all sorts of other body parts. But it's Clotten. It's Clotten in posthumous clothes. Does she not know her husband very well? I mean, apparently not. And then the Romans arrive. Yeah, on cue. On cue in Wales for some reason. They just we... we'll just skip out London. We'll just skip out all of the southeast of England anywhere and just that go straight make... to Wales. We'll skip out anywhere that would make more sense for sailing to Italy. That we know that that <laughs> the key stronghold of uh, England and. <laughs> Britain is is in Milford Haven. That's right. That's right. Very important. And Caius Lucius is there and he says, Ah, you boy, you seem like a good sort of chap. Why not join my army? And Imogen, thinking she's got nothing to lose, agrees to do that. So she's just joined the Roman army. Because she just doesn't have any any independence whatsoever. <laughs> nope. And anyone just says anything to her and she's like, yeah, sure. Welcome yeah, to women yeah, in Shakespeare. I'll die. Yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah, no, take my husband away. I'll die. I'll join your army. Yeah. Why not? Welcome she's... to Shakespeare writing women. Well, flip it round. She could be a positive role model because she's saying yes to every opportunity. That's true. She's a yes woman. She's like Jim Carrey. She's, yeah, Jim Carrey. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Jim Carrey, when guest on our podcast. Yeah. 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 Could be fun. Okay. So, meanwhile, Imogen's brothers see the British army marching by and they go, that looks like an adventure. Let's join up. Yeah. Why not? At this point, why not? And uh, Bellarius tries to talk them out of it because he doesn't want to get found out that these are actually the princes that he kidnapped as babies. But they're like, no, dad, we want to fight. And he lets them. Posthumous, meanwhile, back in Rome thinks that Imogen is dead because Pisanio wrote to him to say that she was dead and he just believes anything that anyone says to him about Imogen, apparently. And now, way too late, he is really sorry for being such an asshole to her. Okay. Well, now that she's dead. Now that he thinks she's dead. He's so, really... Oh, actually, no, she was a good wife. Yeah. Abuse, like, textbook abuser. He is now, he thinks, even more posthumous because he's outlived his wife. Mm-hmm. So thinking that he has nothing left to lose, he joins the Roman army and sails for Britain, presumably via Milford Haven. That's and where everything happened. <laughs> where everything in happened. This period of time, everything in, went through Milford Haven. You had to be through Milford Haven. You had to be there. And he goes into the war basically explicitly saying, like, I hope they kill me. That's what I want to happen, is to die. Okay, so recap. Imogen, still disguised as Fidele, has joined the Roman army and thinks that Posthumus is dead. Posthumus thinks that Imogen is dead, also has joined the Roman army. Neither of them know about that. And Imogen's two long-lost brothers and the men who kidnapped them have now joined Cymbeline's British army. Gotcha. All right, we're into Act 5. Ooh. Showdown. This is why I had notes, because... Yeah, I, 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 I understand <laughs> it now. There's a lot of... Now it makes growing. sense. <laughs> it makes sense. Okay, so... Top of Act 5, Giacomo feels super guilty about slandering Imogen and kind of indirectly leading to her he thinks getting killed. Cymbeline gets captured in the battle and is rescued by his long-lost sons who he does not recognize, and Posthumus helps in Cymbeline's rescue as 
also, but also nobody recognizes him. How come? They just don't. He's not wearing his clothes anymore. Yeah, he's, he's got a different pair of clothes. Different clothes. He's got so you've got some clothes off uh, Jackamo.com. Yeah. <laughs> he's wearing a hat. Um, okay, so Cymbeline gets rescued by a combination of his sons and Posthumus, none of whom he recognizes. Then, in the next scene, Posthumus changes back to the Roman side for reasons? I don't really know. I, he's, I guess he's hoping to get killed, so he's sort of bouncing between whichever side he thinks is losing the war. Right? What? Yes. There are easier ways to kill yourself. Yes, there are. But we've established that Posthumus is the worst. So it sort of works because he gets captured by the Brits um, like a second later and he's thrown into jail and he resigns himself to death. But then, just wait, it gets weirder. His family appears as ghosts. Shakespeare was missing some ghosts at this point. Yeah. So I've thrown everything here, thrown everything at this play, but no ghosts. ghosts. What we're really missing in this play is ghosts. More batshit i did promise things. you supernatural elements yeah i like a good supernatural element. yeah it's good we like a good ghost um so his dead father his dead mother and his two dead brothers all appear and they surround him in his sleep and they beg jupiter to help him mm -hmm. not ready? hymen not hymen jupiter yeah um are you ready for it to get even weirder yes shakespeare super fans will know what happens next jupiter descends in thunder and lightning sitting upon an eagle cool yeah. Yeah. <laughs> why not? Why not? At this, at point. this point, why not? <laughs> so Jupiter arrives. He has a really long speech where he complains about how whiny the ghosts are. <laughs> about the journey. <laughs> Stuck in traffic. Oh, Too many fucking eagles out there. <laughs> took me forever to get here. No, he complains about how whiny the ghosts are and how they're annoying him. And that's why he showed up. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's like the dad driving the family <laughs> on holiday. <laughs> And the kid's in the back seat. And he's like, <laughs> I'm going to turn this car right round. I will turn this eagle around. <laughs> turn this eagle. <laughs> so Jupiter's annoyed. But he agrees to help Posthumus anyway, because Posthumus and Imogen got married in one of Jupiter's temples. Mm. So he feels kindly disposed towards <laughs> Posthumus. And... He, he agrees that he's going to help, and he leaves a tablet behind that spells out Posthumus's fate. Like a tablet? <laughs> like, like an iPad. <laughs> iPad? Yeah. Posthumus will live. <laughs> just, like just a, Google Docs or something. Yeah. <laughs> You're reading it in Tesco, like, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess. Um, no, like a scroll. Like a, like a scroll. Yeah, like a scroll. Um. When Posthumus wakes up, he finds the tablet and is like, that's weird and makes no sense. But at this point, why not? And he's just about to be taken to his execution Execution when a messenger arrives and says, actually, nope, you can't execute him. We have to take him to the king. Very unclear why. Jupiter. Okay. Jupiter made it happen. That's what he does. That's what he does. Did he just throw some lightning at it? Yeah, I guess. That's what he does, isn't he? he that is what he does. Throws lightning. He sits on an eagle. Well, yeah. Throws but lightning. only when he's in the in the earthly realm. That's true. I guess he probably he's has in, a cloud he's up chair. On cloud nine when he's. That's true, eh? Cloud nine. Yeah. Um, I guess at a certain altitude, an eagle wouldn't be able to breathe anymore. <laughs> yeah, he has to switch. Yeah. 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 He has to. Where does he put that eagle? He just sort of lets it 
run free when he gets up too high. I guess, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And does he, how does he get the eagles? Does he just summon an eagle, clicks his fingers? I mean, he's Jupiter. I, oh, yeah, I think he can do what he wants. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Or does he have like an app on his tablet? That... <laughs> <laughs> Uber eagles. <laughs> Uber eagles. <laughs> I'm in the prophecy app. <laughs> Better call an eagle. Oh, these whiny ghosts. Yeah. Better get an eagle. Oh, okay, so we have made it to the final climactic big revelation scene. Old Shakespeare has 500 lines to wrap everything up. Do we think he can do it? Yes. Do we think he can do it well? Mm-hmm. Questionable. Questionable. <laughs> but we have some fun on the way. So, all right, let's go. So... The scene starts with Cymbeline knighting his two sons, who he still doesn't know are his two sons, for their bravery in the battle. Then we find out that the queen is dead. Randomly. (laughs) She's like a lion. (laughs) This character is like built up. Like, oh, the evil queen with with her poison and everything. And oh, she died. Behind the scenes. We haven't heard from her in like three and a half acts. She got that. She was just there just to get that poison in place. That's, you know, that's all women are good for, really. Um, getting poison. Getting poison in place. And, and saying yes. Yes. So Cymbeline is sad about this for like a second, but then the doctor tells him that she never loved him. She found him abhorrent, actually, and she was only after his throne, and she was also plotting to kill Imogen, and she was planning to poison him as well so that Clotten could be king. I like this doctor had all this information. <laughs> yeah, he had a and lot it was just of like, I'm going to keep this to myself. And then when I she's know. dead. Then I'll spill the beans. He clearly knows she's a problem because he wouldn't give her deadly poison yeah. in like the first act. So he's just been sitting on this. He's just been sitting on it. Yep. Um, not the best doctor. And then Cymbeline is like, well, it's not my fault that I trusted her because she's just so hot. What else could I have done? Oh, well. <laughs> hot people equal trustworthy, obviously. <laughs> or hot people allowed to be killers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also that. Okay. So then... Caius and the captured Romans, including Yakimo, come in and surrender. Formally surrender. Page turn. Caius requests only one thing in his terms of surrender, and that is that the boy Fidele, aka Imogen in disguise, be spared and pardoned. And Cymbeline is looking at Fidele and is like, this boy is so familiar. It's your daughter, you dingus. Does not recognize well, why, her. Why do they why does this one thing? Because it helps the plot. Not spare my life. No, spare this life. Of... Spare the life of this boy. Yeah. Um. Yes. So Cymbeline is like, oh, I just, you know, this boy is so familiar. I feel a real connection to this boy because it's his daughter. But he doesn't know that yet because apparently you put on a hat and you're invisible to your friends and family in this play. Put on someone else's clothes. <laughs> and if you become them. You become them. <laughs> it's the Clotten logic. <laughs> Clotten logic. So Cymbeline says, all right, I'm going to spare your life. And also you can make any request you want of me. You can have absolutely anything and I will grant it to you. And Imogen at this point has clocked that Yakimo is wearing the ring she gave to Posthumus that Posthumus said he would never, ever take off. So her request is that the king makes Yakimo tell her where he got the ring. Okay. I mean, not just I'll have that ring. No, no, no. she wants she wants ring. to know where he got it. Very polite. And Caius Lucius is pretty upset because he's like, you could have saved my life, but you want to yeah. know about this ring? Yeah, he could have returned the favor. Yeah, I think he was fully expecting that 
Fidele would return the favor, given the name Fidele. Yeah. But no. Imogen wants to know, how did you get that ring? Meanwhile, Imogen's brothers have recognized her as the boy Fidele who they thought was dead. The only people with their heads on in this whole scene. (laughs) Like, hey, isn't that Fidele? They still don't know that that's their sister. Okay, so Yakumo tells the entire story of how he got the ring in extreme detail. I mean, it goes on for like a hundred lines of him just recapping what happened. I think it's probably because I imagine at the time, most people were probably just like scratching their heads going, what the hell is going on in this play? Yeah, and I mean, they need a recap. You know, like when you have like a TV series, and if if, if the plot's you know quite complicated, they'll have that recap at the start of every mm. episode. This play is so convoluted; they have a recap <laughs> in the middle in of the, the episode. Of the <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it's also important because keep in mind that Posthumus is on stage, and he didn't know that that's what Yakimo did. Ah, he needs to find out. He needs to find out. And the only way you find out things is by other people saying them. And- in front of you. That's right. And Posthumus believes anything that anyone tells him about Imogen. (laughs) So here we are. So in the middle of that story, Posthumus reveals himself and interrupts Yakumo and is like, you fiend! And does this big speech about wanting to kill him. And Imogen tries to talk talk him down, but she's still in disguise. And so he hits her and she falls to the floor. Posthumus hits Fidelio. Yes. Just like smacks him. (laughs) Shut up. I'm having a breakdown. Literally. He's just like, I'm so angry, smack. <laughs> He's such a dick. He's such a dick. And so Pisanio steps in and is like, you idiot, that's your wife. And I she- really hope that the end of this play doesn't like, oh, and they get back together. and They definitely get back together. <laughs> so Pisanio is like, this is your wife. How did you not see this? And she takes her hat off and he's like, oh my God, it's my wife. Wow, you're not dead. And she's like, no, I'm not fucking dead. I'm right here. You hit me. Is he just like, well, I beat my wife, but in all fairness, I didn't know she was my wife. I thought she was a boy. Okay. And then Bellarius is like, well, as long as we're revealing stuff, by the way, here are the kidnapped princes. Okay. <laughs> and the, the boys are like, what? what? <laughs> We're the kidnapped princess? And he's like, yes, you are the kidnapped princess. As we're revealing things. That's not the actual line, but that's just sort of how it feels. (laughs) On that subject, (laughs) what we're here. (laughs) Since we're taking hats off. So, uh, by the way, these are the two kidnapped princes. And then um, they have to confess that they killed Clotten, but nobody really minds. And they're like, well, Queen's dead anyway. I mean, he was a crusty jumper. Let's just be honest he about that. Crust anyway, at some point. A soothsayer arrives and deciphers the prophecy. A soothsayer, yes. Mm. This isn't her first scene. She was in an earlier one as well, um, but I just didn't mention it because you know there's so much, <laughs> so not much her in first the play. Sooth. It's not her first sooth, and uh, she deciphers the prophecy that Posthumus got from Jupiter and shows how it has all come to pass. And then Cymbeline says that he will pay the tribute to Rome, even though he won the war, and that's the end of the play. <laughs> Okay, so I've got several several questions. Okay. <laughs> Number one, if he was going to pay the tribute to Rome, uh-huh. couldn't he just done that at the start and then the whole war and a lot of the conflict could have just not have happened? Yes. And wasn't the fact that they were at war because they didn't want to pay the tribute? Yes. That was the entire point of the war. Okay, and they won and then they were like, well, we won, but you know what? We're going to concede anyway. <laughs> yes, that is okay. exactly what happens. Okay. All right. Point number two. Okay. Why is this play called Cymbeline? <laughs> Why is it not called 
I don't know, <laughs> something else. Fidelio and Posthumus or something. <laughs> Um, I guess for the same reason that Julius Caesar is called Julius Caesar, even though he dies in Act Three. Okay. It's the sort of recognizable. He's a powerful man, and powerful men get have to be to the have... title of place. Yeah. yeah. Even I if mean, they're like not in it. I think Cymbeline is, is probably the recognizable property in this play to people oh, okay. at the time. He's a, a, a you know, kind He's of historical mystery. king of England, a king of Britain. Um, I would have called it Jupiter's Eagle. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a real selling point. He buries the lead on that one. Doesn't Although I guess it until... does kind of like kill the kind of M. Night Shyamalan moment of the play. I had just taken a drink of water <laughs> when James said that and I really almost spit it out on the microphone. And when I say M. Night Shyamalan moment of the play, <laughs> I'm sort of referring to those sort of late 2000 years. As opposed to what? What else could you possibly not mean the, by not M. The Night Shyamalan? Well, not the good twist. The one good twist he ever did. I'm referring to the bad twist. Well, no, it's not a little bit unfair. It's, it's, but it's, it's a it's a deus ex machina, right? It's a it's a plot device that allows the ending to happen, yes. but doesn't make that much sense in a kind of naturalistic framework. No. Do you have any more questions? It has everything been resolved, and I don't really know if it has. So presumably. You've said that Posthumus and Imogen are then back together. Yes. And they live happily ever after. I mean, presumably, unless he hits her again. That's all I'm saying. It's also like, I just, it's just not an excuse to be like, why does he punch Fidelio? Like, there's no reason <laughs> to. Especially, especially when it's his wife. But like, even if it was a random boy who was there, yes. there's no reason I'm trying to find the um the bit of the scene. Okay, so um Posthumus is is ranting on because he still thinks that Imogen is dead, right? He thinks that he ordered Pisanio well, he did order Pisanio to kill Imogen and he thinks that Pisanio actually did that. So he gets to the end of this speech about how much he wants to kill Giacomo, and he's going, Oh, Imogen, my queen, my life, my wife, oh Imogen, Imogen, Imogen. And she steps in, still in disguise, and is like, Peace, my lord, here, like, listen, I'm here, it's me. And he says shalls have a play of this thou scornful page lie there thy part and and strikes her wow yeah and she falls and then pisanio jumps in and is like mine and your mistress lord posthumus mm. this is imogen you ne'er killed imogen till now so pisanio's all right pisanio's all right pisanio is probably the only decent he's got person quite an italian play. name he does yes i wonder what the name means it's probably in the introduction somewhere mm. So it, it's a wild one. It's a wild ride, this play. Mm. That's why I love it. What happens with the those brothers? They just... The, well, they're they're now heirs to the throne. Mm. So it doesn't matter who Imogen marries because she is no longer next in line. Oh, so she can she say, bye-bye, Posthumus, you dick. Well, no, she wants to be with Posthumus, but she... <laughs> She's got no spine. <laughs> she should say, bye-bye, Posthumus, you dick, but she doesn't. Spineless Imogen. Yes. Um, Belarius gets forgiven because he <laughs> raised the boys, even though he kidnapped them, and he was never he never betrayed Cymbeline in the first place. But did he kind of betray Cymbeline by stealing his? I mean, boys? yes, <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Giacomo feels guilty, and apparently that is punishment enough. That's enough. Um, what happens to him? Because if he's he is Italian, right? 
He is Italian, yes. So is he not sort of captured, or does this whole, oh, we'll pay the tribute thing, they just sort of let them yeah, slap they do, on the wrist? Yeah, they and... do just sort of let them go back to Italy, I guess. Okay. I don't know, man. You're asking me to explain something that I can't actually explain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just, just trying to, like, wrap up all the things, because yeah, it, it does wrap up the, the, the kind of loose threads, but... Mm those threads are still kind of waving in the wind, you know, there's still, yeah, I it mean, doesn't it's... quite answer like, well, what, what happens next, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just sort of got to the point where everything's tied up and gone, right, yeah, done. Yeah, it's not a super satisfying ending, really. It's just a sort of, oh, we had to get to the end. It, it's like he, you know, they got to minute 42 of the primetime TV episode and they were like, <laughs> it, like, yeah. do you remember House? <laughs> like House would always solve the case in like minute 43. <laughs> That's what this is. It was the janitor. Yeah. It was lupus after all. Yeah. It's never lupus. That's kind of what Shakespeare does here. It's like we get to the the last scene and it's like, oh crap, I have a lot of things to tie tie up. up. I better come to the end. But yeah, Mm, good adventures in Wales. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is it the first and only Shakespeare play set in Wales? Um, I don't know. I swear there's another one. Okay. But I, I might be thinking of... Birth of Merlin, which is a William Rowley play, which Jeff is Rowley. Jeff Rowley. No, William is a William Rowley play, which is set largely in Wales. He doesn't set very many of his plays. Like presumably, the histories get into Wales at some point. Wars of the Roses and all of that. Probably. Yeah. I don't know much about. Wars I don't know the them Roses, that well. Apart from the Battle of Bosworth. Battle of Bosworth. I I would have to get into the details of. Maybe some people will know and they can comment. But yeah, there's, there's not that much Shakespeare set in britain at all um it's all in italy including this play it's yeah exactly a lot of it's in italy a lot of it's in other places except for the histories and cymbeline and the merry wives of windsor so there are there are quite a few set in britain but i don't know how many of those venture into wales so yeah that's cymbeline it's my very favorite play you're very is this your number one this is my number one shakespeare play yes all time or just right now all time wow because, I will tell you why, because it doesn't feel like a Shakespeare play. I think as much as it's... It feels more like, I mean, I've sat in on that reading of Birth of Merlin. Hmm. It's in that sort of realm, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's. I mean, not just because it's in Wales. set in Wales <laughs> and not because it's sort of, you know, you're going into sort of British legend territory. Mm. It, it's just that kind of wackiness of it, isn't it? That... Yeah. it's It's got a wacky factor, which you don't see in a lot of Shakespeare or I think if you if you don't read other playwrights from this period you might think that Shakespeare is wacky and then you start reading like John Webster and John Ford and Rowley and Middleton and Decker and you suddenly are like oh there is weirder stuff out there for sure John Lilly Marlowe even like Edward II is wacky so Shakespeare, like, normally only aspires to the level of wackiness that those other playwrights achieve. And I feel like in Cymbeline, he really nails it. He really gets the, the wacky level. Gets the whack on. Cranks the whack up to 11, in my opinion. Mm. Um, and that is one of the reasons I really like it. I think it's cool. I also actually really like Imogen as a heroine. I feel like she gets a really bad rap. Um, and she is written kind of spinelessly. But she also, like, goes to Wales by herself and lives in a cave for a while. And, like, kind True. of... You know, she kind of makes her own way, despite all of this stuff being set up against her and people trying to murder her and stuff. So, you know, I feel for her. Um, I, I like her. I, I dig her. I think she's cool. Mm. 
I do think this play ranks very high on the misogynometer, though. Yes, I was just about to say, is it time? It is time. It is time. So. Oh, it's a, it's a difficult one. This is possibly the worst. I don't know if it is the worst that we will cover. I'm just trying to balance it now. Mm. I think it's probably like a 7.5 to an 8. Oh, okay, okay. Reasons? Well, I feel like Imogen... I mean, you've sort of defended her, and I, I think I can kind of see her strong points. But I feel like the way that she's written, it, it's sort of like she can go off and do these things by herself, but whenever there is a man involved, she just immediately buckles and will do whatever they say, and it's just sort of like that doesn't feel very good i don't know <laughs> yeah it's not super not a super empowered role. it's not a very empowered role and you know let's not even well actually the whole point of us discuss it so let's 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 start, <laughs> let's discuss let's it. start on posthumous <laughs> and clotten yeah because they are the two big misogynists in this play mm-hmm. and also cymbeline to a degree because he's yeah. not letting his daughter be with posthumous yeah. in the first place right? and also because he admits he was only married to the queen because she was hot yeah <laughs> i mean she was using I mean, him too so yeah. you know mutual mutually assured destruction there i think i think uh posthumous is possibly the worst because he's supposed to be reciprocating that faithfulness mm. and, and that trust mm-hmm. we know clotten's a dick we know that he's an asshole and that he's a he feels entitled mm-hmm. but posthumous is supposed to be or should be a good husband and he's really not mm. and he shouldn't he doesn't really deserve to have imogen as his wife again at the end if it's you know if you're asking me <laughs> and i am i would say that pisario what is it called pisanio pisanio <laughs> i made him sound more italian you did <laughs> pisanio should get along with Imogen, in my opinion. Oh, oh, scandal. That would be very scandalous. Affair with the serpent. But he's like, probably, well, maybe the brothers, brothers seem, they're okay, aren't they? She's not going to get it on with her brothers. No, no, though. no, no. <laughs> but going to Game of Thrones territory. <laughs> We're going into John Ford, tis pity she's a whore territory. Ooh. Yeah. That, that is, is that the number one on the misogynist? <laughs> I mean, it's up there. Yeah, it, that is that is up there. Yes. And that play is, is all about incest. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I was I wasn't meaning as in viable options. I was meaning as in, um, <laughs> as in decent men. <laughs> decent men in the play. Yeah, it's kind of what those three guys, pretty much. Pretty much. And yeah. the the the, the uh, Italian guy who doesn't seem too bad, Lucius. Oh yeah, Caius Lucius. Yeah, yeah. and the, there's another guy, Filario, who I didn't really mention, who tries to kind of talk Posthumus down when Iacomo's winding him up earlier on. Um, so he's okay. Um, Filario's all right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I always find it interesting when we talk about this and we come to the end of it. We're always like trying to like who are the who are the bad guys, who are the good guys? And then there's like and there's one woman. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. And I, I feel that especially in this one because the queen is so evil and she's really memorable, but she's hardly in it. She she's really in it. She's she like, really has like three scenes. And it's the lion all over again, as I said before. <laughs> it's you know? the hermit. It's the hermit. 
Yeah, crucial role, not really in it. Just that where people just die off stage. It's just yeah, it's a sort of a Lady Macbeth death as well, it is. right? And oh we, yeah, of course. Yeah, we haven't. Um, you haven't heard that episode yet, but we uh, we talk about that too. That she just sort of dies off stage, and it gets like reported to the king, who maybe isn't as upset about it as you'd think because that's not as important as posthumous having a whole scene just talking to himself about how women suck yeah i mean <laughs> and that's why this is an eight <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i i would even potentially put it up at a nine um i think as i said i really like imogen i think there's there's potential in performance for her to come across as more empowered than she is kind of in the text and i I do give a little bit of credit to the brothers for being, I think, truly the only characters in Shakespeare who explicitly recognize someone they have seen before, but is now in front of them in a slightly different context. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. um, I'll give them that. And and Lucius seems okay. Caius Lucius is okay. But everybody else, yeah. Pisario. And Pisanio, Yeah. <laughs> You kept calling her Fidelio, too. She's Fidele. Fidelio? Yeah, no, Fidele. And who's the other guy? Fellatio? <laughs> Filario. Filario. <laughs> is that on his love token? That is on his... <laughs> I owe you... Filario Fellatio. Yeah, Filario Fellatio. That's his porn name. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think this is up there on the misogynometer. I think any play that gives a guy a whole scene... In which to just rant about how awful women are. Yeah. Even though he later feels bad about it. Yeah. Especially as you've said, it's sort of like a wink, wink. Yeah. Nudge, nudge to the male audience. Is that, is that, it has that kind of vibe. Yeah. And I I think we haven't talked about Yakimo very much yet, but also that whole thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 fuck. Yeah. The the, the whole sneaking in the room thing. (laughs) Yeah. There's so much that's gone on in this play that (laughs) that makes you really think that you can have a, a sexual assault in a play and you don't remember it's happened because there's just so much batshit things are going on yeah yeah yakimo is is gross clotten as well like even though he he kind of does what he says on the tin he is, he is the a the clotten tin he's a crusty jumper yeah um but he also is gross and there there's a line from one of the scenes with him i'll see if i can find it which just like really kind of haunts my nightmares because he's this is the scene with the musicians where he's trying to serenade her. And oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that. like, first of all, that. But also, I think the the thing that she says to him kind of really sticks in my soul a little bit, like makes me feel very ick and uncomfortable because I have known men like this who just will not leave you alone. And he he's trying to get her to kind of commit to going out with him, basically. And and she's kind of equivocating. And he says to her, this is no answer. Like, you're you're not actually talking straight with me. And she says, but that you shall not say I yield being silent, I would not speak. So she has presumably from experience learned that if she just says nothing, he takes that to mean yes. Right. Right. So she's like, I wouldn't even talk to you, except that I know if I don't talk to you, you're just going to assume that I agree with you. That's insane. Yeah. If you ignore someone, it actually means you agree with them. Apparently. <laughs> Apparently. If you're a crusty jumper. If you're a woman. <laughs> yeah. If, yes. If, if you're uh, a woman and you say nothing. And and like, I think women listening to the podcast um, probably almost universally have experienced this. But it's it just that line is just like, oh, he's so gross. I really dislike him. And I feel like his, 
you know, the play kind of presents Posthumus to us as a better option, but as we've talked about, he is not actually any better. He is is full on awful. So yeah, I, I really feel like poor Imogen just has no really good options here. And Pisani. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, he certainly cares more about her than Posthumus does, yeah. right? Um, he's kind of the one who sort of knows what's going on. He's able to see all the threads, right? Yeah. He's sort of yeah. trying to kind of get them back together, right? Mm. Though, really, yeah, he should be like, not... Run away with me, Imogen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think a nine. I give it a nine mm. on the misogynometer, which averages us out at 8.5, so it's pretty high. I think it's the highest that we've we've seen so far. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's Cymbeline, my favorite play, mm. which is also super misogynist. <laughs> you love those misogynist plays. You know, I I don't love the misogyny, but I do love the wackiness. I love that as a as a theater maker, I think it's such a fun play and it's such a fun challenge to think about how would we actually go about staging this. <laughs> how do we get the eagle? How do we get the eagle? How do we get the, you know, how do we differentiate whales from wherever else they are? Milford Haven. Milford Haven. <laughs> how do we how do we get the rights to use the Tesco logo? <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean it's also a um I think it's a play that really has a lot of uh salience to borrow a term from two fabulous scholars, Ambreen Dadaboy and Neda Mitisade, who who talk about the difference between salience and relevance in Shakespeare, right? Like if we say Shakespeare is relevant, that's that's kind of giving him a lot of power and a lot of sort of foresight. But if we talk about salience, that's something that's that we find the resonances or we find the parts of it that are kind of speaking to us in the present and that are connecting to things that are happening now without kind of giving Shakespeare the, the credit for <laughs> making that link. And I, I think it's a really salient play in a lot of ways. It's a really salient play for Brexit Britain. It's a really salient play for women's rights and, and autonomy. It's a really, and domestic violence. It's a really salient play for thinking about what Britishness means. It's a, a really interesting play from an eco-critical angle because so much of it happens outdoors and is kind of invested in the outdoor environment. There's lots and lots of different angles that you can approach this from. And it, as complicated as it is, it leaves you space to kind of read it in many different ways. So I like that. I'm teaching this play right now. And my students and I were looking at uh, Act 3, Scene 1, which is the play of a scene in which Clotten and the Queen primarily, but also sort of Cymbeline, are basically being like, fuck you, Rome, we're not paying your tribute. And they, a lot of the rhetoric my students noticed was very, very, very similar to a lot of the referendum rhetoric. Things about Britain's a world by itself and we will nothing pay for wearing our own noses. Did Cymbeline commission a bus? <laughs> you know, I think the advantage of being Cymbeline and being a king in Roman Britain is you didn't need people to agree with you. You could just declare a war and it's yeah. done. You don't need to lie to no, get you people don't. to vote. You don't. You don't. And that's not controversial because an actual court actually ruled that. They did. Mm-hmm. So we're not counting that bit. Look it up. So that's Cymbeline. That's Cymbeline. Do you love it? Is it your favourite Shakespeare play? <laughs> Have you ever heard of it before today? <laughs> Are you going to go and read it now because you're so excited? You want to know about the eagle? You want to know more? Woo-hoo. You've been listening to Not Another Shakespeare Podcast and this is our pre-recorded outro. If you liked this episode, please review and subscribe. If you hated this episode, maybe share it with a nemesis. You can follow us on social media at NA Podcast or check out our website, nashakespearepodcast.com. 
thanks for listening and see thee next time. And fare thee well. <laughs> <laughs>